According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9, we wrapped up the last details out of chapter 8 last week and even took a sneak peek at uh, some of the early stuff here in this chapter. I want to get right back to it here uh, this morning. First, though, let's open in prayer to make sure that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again this morning, thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, I do thank you for this midweek service and the blessings of studying Proverbs. We call upon your faithfulness now this hour to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us, and to bless the truth of your word, the ministry of your word this morning, Father. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is the final chapter for the first portion of of the book of Proverbs, uh, the segment from chapter 1 to chapter 9 that I titled Parental Wisdom because of the, uh, really, the abundance of references throughout these nine chapters to my son or my sons, uh, either singular or plural. Um, Also with the reboot that takes place in chapter 10 and verse 1, we have a whole new uh, heading, introductory heading, as it says, uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. And uh, you see an introduction in Proverbs 10.1 that almost looks like the introduction in Proverbs 1.1. And you're like, well, are we starting the book all over again? What, you know, how many beginnings do we have in the book? Well, there will be a third beginning when we get to chapter 25 because there is a collection of Proverbs that were assembled together during the days of Hezekiah and that they were compiled and they were organized uh, along with uh, chapter 30 and 31, uh, King Lemuel and so forth. And those, uh, those got added to the canon of Scripture as well. So uh, my personal belief, uh, conviction, is that these nine chapters actually express David's wisdom that he, uh, he and Bathsheba instilled into Solomon from Solomon's youth. And, the, and these early nine chapters were, were really Davidic material more so than Solomonic because it was what Solomon received and what he grew up with as a boy. And then, of course, he obtained his own wisdom as an adult and wisdom from the Lord. That gets reflected in chapters 10 through uh, 24. In any event, we'll uh, introduce that when we get to chapter 10. So today, uh, we introduce chapter 9. Chapter 9 recaps and concludes the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. All right, and so we have a recap and a conclusion, and really it serves as a snapshot. Many of the themes in this chapter are themes we've already seen before, like the fool, uh, wisdom and folly that are contrasted. We've had plenty of uh, examples of that prior to chapter 9. The scoffing scoffer is brought back into focus. We haven't really seen a lot of him since chapter 1. Uh, there's a difference between a fool and a scoffer, and uh, a scoffer is much worse. <laughs> All right? There's actually a hope for a fool. A fool, if he's humble, can be taught. You know, the ignorant can be informed. Uh, the scoffer, though, is, is like a hardened heart fool, uh, someone that not only is, is, is foolish but is insisting upon their foolishness and scoffing at the very wisdom that can rescue them from their foolishness because they know so much better. And we'll talk about that as well. Uh, Proverbs, uh, Psalms speaks of the scoffer as well. How blessed is the man that does not sit in the seat of scoffers, right? So we have uh, the issues there. 
wisdom and folly that are contrasted. Let's take a look at these early verses anyway. Uh, Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of of understanding. And so the chapter begins with this marvelous invitation. Everything has been prepared. Who who would not accept an invitation as gracious as this, as marvelous as this? Oh, okay, there's a scoffer. (laughs) All right, and so we have uh, the issues there. Verse 7, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. Now a fool, if they're humble, they can come and receive the wisdom, but the scoffer is another issue. He who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So there's a beautiful contrast there. And it's, uh, it's interesting. And of course, Jesus taught this. He spoke about casting your pearls before swine and giving what is holy to the dogs and what happens when uh, you are hated for the very thing that you are dishing up, all right? I think we need to have some discernment, some wisdom, and stop dishing up what it is that... Uh, that, I mean, keep dishing it up to the folks that need to have it dished to them, but the other folks, no, you've got to have some discernment, some wisdom related to that. Otherwise, you're just heaping uh, disaster upon your own head in, uh, in those things. Uh, I guess the final one I'll glance at, let's see, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 12 are where we have the scoffer here. Uh, so you'll, you'll notice it again. Uh, see, so where did I stop? I stopped with verse 8. Uh, Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Uh, Tremendous blessings there that will develop. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Really, that verse becomes uh, the the theme for the whole book of Proverbs, does it not? And uh, this is what we want to uh, foster as we're studying the book of Proverbs is that fear of the Lord. We never want to lose that. Uh, the, The day we do is the day we stop acquiring wisdom. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. And uh, some folks don't like that verse and they have a theology that doesn't allow them to accept that verse. Um, if, if your theology has a problem with certain verses, I suggest you modify your theology. Uh, I, I don't suggest that you edit the verse out of your thinking because the verse is there. The verse is true. All right. And uh, we need to understand that, yes, we do have X number of days, but we also have Y number of days and Z number of days. And God and his wisdom and his foreknowledge has a complete and total handle on these things, and he's not trapped. I, I understand that our days are, are numbered before there was even one of them, but there are, in, in numbering those days, there are also contingencies baked into the plan, baked into the cake, we, we might say, that God has the X number of days, which is the, the standard that he has designed for our life, but he also has uh, a, a Y number, which is somewhat shorter than X, if through sin and a death and divine discipline, he removes us in, in, in our failure. Or the Z number of days, which is longer than the X number of days, when he grants an extension of physical life for various reasons. Honoring your father and mother, for example, has a promise that we may live long. And there's an extension of days that comes in that. Here we also see the extension of days. By me, your days will be multiplied. We talked about that back in chapter 3, in fact. That uh, the benefit to uh, that God may or may not 
He's not obligated to. It's not a it's not a magical formula or a spell where we hold him to certain things based upon what we think is is our degree of faithfulness. But nevertheless, uh, days can be multiplied and years can be added. And uh, we'll deal with that in verse eleven because I think there's a tremendous wealth of encouragement that comes out of that comes out of that. All right. We also have a a. Uh, contrast with this woman of folly in verses 13 through 18 and this is also largely redundant from previous developments we've had repeated expressions warning us against this adulterous woman this strange woman and and uh, the first one was kind of short and they got longer 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 now we're going to kind of recap it with again another short one um and the invitation that she offers uh, is similar to Lady Wisdom's, and there's a reason for that. The the lie is always counterfeit; is always, you know, uh, tries to pass itself off as similar or uh, uh, a reasonable facsimile, even when it's not. And uh, so she sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their path straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says. Now, unlike wisdom, wisdom wants the fool, wants wants the, the pethy to come so that pethy can stop being pethy, right? Wisdom wants the, the naive to come to get the instruction, to get the wisdom and to grow and to be benefited. Um, this woman only wants to victimize the naive. You know, come on in so that um, we can participate in, in expanded carnality and and uh, and so forth. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. All right? But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So you don't want to be a part of that uh, dinner party in, uh, in that respect. All right, well, how about that? Ten minutes in, we've read all 18 verses. Any questions? <laughs> all right. So in, in any event, chapter 9 recaps and concludes the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Wisdom and folly are contrasted, particularly verse 1, verse 6, and verse 13. The scoffing scoffer is also spotlighted in verse 7, 8, and 12. We're going to start, though, with the seven pillars. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Well, that sounds exciting. What are these seven pillars? We have a picture that's being painted here. Wisdom's seven-pillared house. Can you imagine a house of this grandeur, a house of this size, of this opulence that, re- that requires seven pillars either to uphold the whole thing if these are load-bearing pillars or uh, at the entrance of the, of the front of the house in the portico, as we might say. Solomon's temple only had the two great pillars in front. Uh, um, can you imagine seven? Oh my goodness. How huge is this palace? How glorious is this residence if it is in fact a seven-pillared house? Wisdom's seven-pillared house illustrates the delight Jesus Christ has for the sons of men. And uh, the delight that he has, both he delights in the men themselves, he also delights in preparing a dwelling place for them. The delight that Jesus Christ has for the sons of men and the delight Jesus Christ has in preparing dwelling places for them. That he has a destiny for them with himself. With himself. All right? And of course we have the emphasis here from John 14. I'll turn to in a moment. Uh, But we understand that there is a house. There is a dwelling place. There is a place that we belong. All right? And that is... um, 
particularly remarkable when we identify the fact that this world is not our home and the blessings that we have to recognize that that our time on this earth is is preparation for where he's taking us after we leave here and the blessings that we're going to have in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That uh, the, uh, the temporal experience of humanity is only in the meantime. It's only in the here and now as we're getting ready for the even greater provision for what's coming up. And so there is a great delight. We saw in chapter 8, he has his delight in the sons of men. Uh, verses 30 and 31, he was daily his father's delight. And uh, in verse 31, he has his delight in the sons of man. I find that interesting because we don't have the, the, the daily aspect is before the Father. The, da- the delight in the sons of men is not necessarily daily, and it certainly can't be daily uh, early on because humanity doesn't come about for quite some time. You know, the angels come about first and their stewardship and the, the rebellion there and so forth. It's not until... Um, uh, the, the tohu wabohu destruction and the restoration for uh, Adam's habitation that, that then Adam uh, comes along. So there's no daily delight in, in uh, 831 like there is daily delight in 830. And I find that to be significant, something I'd like to expand upon maybe in, in some future studies. But that's kind of the backdrop for now what introduces us into chapter 9, all right? And really the message in, in, that closes chapter 8, 32 through 36, where he says, Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. This is his address to the sons of men. It's his address to humanity and the blessings that humanity has to identify with Jesus Christ and to, um, to be pleasing in the sight of the Father like he is, all right? In any event... So humanity is designed to learn the Word of God. Humanity is designed to identify with Christ. Humanity is designed to come to the Father through Jesus Christ. And humanity has a house. There is a house prepared. There is a house prepared. And here it's called a seven-pillared house. And so uh, this is what we're looking at. All right, Uh, there's an invitation. There's a lot of feasting that goes along in this house. Um, Some of the other things, we already read the verses. All right. Let's look at John 14. See a New Testament parallel here. So much of John goes back to Proverbs, and I didn't really realize that until I started doing more work in Proverbs. Such as the in the beginning, John 1, 1, and the connections there with uh, Proverbs 8. The from the beginning was uh, wisdom begotten. Now, John 14 do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. All right. So there's a tandem here between the Father and the Son. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. All right. Now those dwelling places was rendered mansions in the King James. That's very unfortunate. All right. Because they're not mansions. Uh, the the mane, uh singular, manai, I guess, plural. Uh, think of them as... Um, apartments, rooms, something of that nature, within the overall house, all right? And you'll notice there are many, there already are presently, even as I speak, Jesus would say, even right now presently, even as I speak, there are many manai, dwelling places within my Father's house. And that would be consistent with Proverbs 9.1 in terms of wisdom has built her 
house. It's already been built. It's already been constructed. It is uh, uh, constructed with seven pillars, all right? And it is prepared for the sons of men with many rooms, all right? And that's fitting. It's it's appropriate in the Old Testament. It's appropriate in in, uh, the standpoint of Israel and their stewardship, for the Gentiles and their stewardship, and the issues there. However, none of those dwelling places are appropriate for the bride of Christ, for the body of Christ. And so he goes on to say, uh, you know, if it were not so, I would have told you, for for I go to prepare a place for you. All right? None of those places are appropriate for the body of Christ. None of those places are designed for the royal family of God, for the church age. All right? They were prepared in the Old Testament. They were prepared before the foundation of the earth. They were prepared for the sons of men, but not for the sons of God, not for the bride of Christ, not for the born-again believers in the church age, you understand. All right? This is something new, just as the body of Christ is something new. It was not a feature of the Old Testament. It was not known in the Old Testament. And so a new creation needs a new dwelling place. And so don't confuse wisdom's seven-pillared house with where you and I are going to live for all eternity, all right? Don't confuse this, by the way, with uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, for example, say, um, prepared as a bride in, uh, in the description there in Revelation 22. If I go and prepare a place for you, okay, which is something different than wisdom's seven-pillared house, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. All right, so Jesus died on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. He rose from the dead on Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. Uh, Forty days after that, he ascended, right? Which Because that was 10 days before Pentecost. Pentecost was on May 24th. Uh, uh, So 10 days prior to that would be May 14th, all right? Would have been a Thursday, (laughs) whatever. Um, Jesus Christ ascended, on Thursday, May 14th, 33 AD. What's he been doing for the last 2,000 years? Well, he tells us right here what he's been doing. I go to prepare a place for you. I suspect it's ready. All right? I suspect it's ready, but the residents are not yet all saved. Okay? The, the bride of Christ has to be made complete. And as soon as that last unbeliever can get saved, that completes the body of Christ, how many is that? Do we need a billion Christians? Do we need two billion Christians? I have no idea. All right. Um, just population numbers are interesting in the, in the 21st century compared to earlier centuries. Um, who knows? You know how, how many how many believers are in heaven right now that are part of the bride of Christ? From uh, you know who's the first, I guess Stephen the early first martyr. Anyway, all the all the bride of Christ is presently with Christ. How many are in heaven versus how many are still on earth right now? See, some think that there's an equal number on earth right now that matches the 20 centuries before us. I don't, I don't know. Some of those demographic numbers confuse me. I don't think there's as many regenerate people on the planet as people say. Because I think people fill out surveys and they say that they're Christian because of a culture, because of a tradition, because of a family, whatever. Well, my parents were Christian. Or, you know, I go to a Baptist church or Lutheran church or Catholic church or whatever. But the true number of regenerate people on the planet I think it's a whole lot smaller than, than uh, Barna or the other uh, uh, survey people will tell you. All right. So I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself. That's key. I will come again 
and receive you to myself. You realize that demands rapture right there because there's two activities. There's a coming activity and there's a receiving activity. You know, if I'm going to a place, then unless something else is happening, I'm going to a place and they're the ones receiving me. If I'm going to a place, okay? If I go to your place Friday night, then I go there and you receive me. It's it's kind of awkward to say, well, I'm going to go and receive you to myself. You see, this requires the rapture. This requires him coming, but not coming all the way. He's not landing on the earth. He's coming only to the clouds. We, We rise, we meet the Lord in the air. That way he can come again, receive us to himself, and then... What does it say? He's going to take us to the place that he's prepared for us. That where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. We meet him in the air, and then he takes us back to heaven. He does not land all the way on the earth. He does not, his feet don't stand on the Mount of Olives. They don't, the mountain doesn't split north and south. And that's second advent. See, rapture, he, he only comes to the clouds. We meet him in the air, and we go back to heaven. All right? And uh, I think the language here of verse 3 demands this. Coming again and receiving you to myself. By the way, this is the same language that we have in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with with regard to the coming of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. See? The, The whole reason to meet the Lord in the air is because He's not landing on the earth, you know? You, you, you rendezvous with somebody somewhere in the middle if they're not coming all the way to where you are, right? Otherwise, why bother meeting the Lord in the air? Why don't we just hang out here on earth till he lands? But no, the whole point of snatching us up and meeting us in the air is so that he can then take us back to heaven and show us these dwelling places, introduce us to the dwelling places that he's prepared for us. All right. Anyway, Jesus is a uh, marvelous carpenter. <laughs> he likes to build things like the universe, like planet Earth, like uh, the house for us, all right? I believe wisdom manufactured the seven-pillared house for angels and Gentiles and Jews, for the uh, elect uh, angels and the elect Jews and Gentiles of the Old Testament stewardship. And it was as glorious as, as this passage describes and, and so forth. <clears throat> but it is uh, not appropriate for the bride of Christ. It is not appropriate for the royal family of God. See, <clears throat> in many respects, Old Testament saints have... Where, is there inheritance in heaven? Or is it on earth? It's on earth. Abraham's land grant's on earth. Resurrected Abraham has an allotment on earth. Daniel's resurrected land grant is on earth. Scripture says so. I think the Manai uh, are uh, the, the apartments that are provided for them for when they visit heaven, but their main dwelling is going to be on earth. Likewise, our territory is going to be mainly heavenly and we'll have uh, apartment or condo uh, facilities uh, in the New Jerusalem above the earth. All right, now, what in the world are these pillars? Let's, uh, let's look back at verse 1 of, of Proverbs 9, and let's try to... Um, well, we can't figure it out because there's nothing here that tells us what it is, so let's just uh, use our imagination to make something up. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm going to make it an allegory. I could probably write books and make some money off this. By the way, I mean, this is... Um, you ever see Lawrence of Arabia? And, um, I mean, what is it, a 27-hour movie or something? I think it's long. And um, anyway, re- have you read the book? Oh, yeah, who has, right? Um, but it, it, this is the title of the book. He, uh, Lawrence took this verse and titled his autobiography The, uh, the Seven Pillars of Wisdom. All right? And so uh, you can get it on your Kindle and, and whatever. But um, let's try to figure out what it is. All right. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Wow, can't wait to learn what those are. And so now I start to see in the context here. She's prepared her food. Is that one of the pillars? She has mixed her wine, maybe. She has set her table, maybe. She has sent out her maidens. Are we up to four pillars now? She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Well, wait a minute. Whoever is naive, let them turn in here. I'm still looking for pillars five, six, and seven, and maybe more, unless, you know, our maiden's pillars. Um, all right. We don't have seven pillars in this passage, okay? You can hunt for it. You can look for it. If you see it, you know, show it to me. Uh, I don't see it. I struggle. Well, then, we have to look other places. Let's find where these pillars might be if they're not in the immediate context, and it's a valid hermeneutic. You, you First of all, you look to immediate context. If you don't find it in immediate context, you find parallel passages. Okay, Maybe there are other passages of Scripture that speak of seven pillars. All right, And, of course, the nearer context is better. If it's elsewhere within Proverbs, that's better. If it's elsewhere within wisdom literature, that's better. If it's Old Testament, that's better. Maybe it's in the New Testament. Okay? Or we actually find that there's, there's no other place in the Bible that has seven pillars. Uh, this is the only passage that speaks of seven pillars. Well, we can start guessing other things. <clears throat> and all they are are guesses. So here, theory A, sub-point A. Well, we have a seven-fold description from chapter 8. And actually, I'm kind of sympathetic to this approach because it does keep it in the immediate context. It does connect the person of wisdom as they're begotten in chapter 8 with the house that's built by wisdom in chapter 9. I'm actually very sympathetic to the concept um, because I think that there's a valid uh, connectivity there between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Clearly, Jesus Christ is the one who's built this house, and Jesus Christ is the one that's begotten by the Father. And so, obviously, the, 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 the links between chapter 8 and chapter 9 are going to be significant. So we look at verses 12 through 14, and we can note some things here. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Okay, so is, is prudence a pillar? I find knowledge and discretion. Now, we kind of got to kind of kind of mash those into a single pillar if we're going to try to force the number seven into into this uh, <laughs> into this uh, chapter. But I don't mind linking together uh, knowledge and discretion because uh, the verse actually links them together with the verb for finding. All right, so I dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. So I'm okay slapping those together with an ampersand. Um, and then the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Huh. Okay, so is that a third pillar? Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Well, we'll just label that fear of the Lord and we'll shove that all into a, a pillar because that seems to be an awful lot in, in that one verse. Uh, then counsel. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. And interestingly enough, I think that those should be linked together, but if we do that, then we don't get seven out of this number. So let's, uh, let's separate, uh, let's, have, let's have a counsel pillar and a sound judgment pillar. I am understanding, power is mine. All right, well, then we'll give power, or we'll give understanding pillar number six, and power can have pillar number seven. Cool. And then it says, by me, kings reign and rulers, and by me, princes. And all right, well, then, okay, we're cool. We're, we, we found our seven. Let's just stop right there, okay? Well, wait a minute. We found our seven because we, we shoved knowledge and discretion together and then we shoved a whole lot of things together into the fear of the Lord and then we arbitrarily stopped with power in, uh, in uh, that verse there, right? Uh, power is mine in verse 14. And we stopped there, but man, I go down to verse 18 and riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Well, I kind of want those to be pillars, <laughs> you know? Can't we have a rich pillar and an honor pillar and a wealth pillar and a righteous pillar? Hmm. All right. Well, this is just a theory, and you may find commentaries that will defend it and try to, to put it together. And, you know, it's got a lot going for it. I do like its proximity to Proverbs 9. I like that. But I don't see the word pillar in this chapter, and I don't see. Uh, indicators in the text that specifically connect it. I don't see in chapter 9 where it says wisdom has built her house, she has hewn out her seven pillars, and anything then in that context that demands that I go back to find those descriptions in chapter 8. So maybe there's another option. How about the seven spirits from Isaiah? Ooh, there's a good one. Okay. And uh, what's in favor of this theory? Well, the number seven. Okay, and that's that's kind of cool, and um, also uh, spirit. Well, hmm. no, I don't have spirit in Proverbs nine one, but I do have wisdom. Okay, and one of the spirits is the spirit of wisdom. Ah, so we go to Isaiah chapter eleven, and uh, this chapter gets a lot of a lot of uh, use. More so in Revelation than it does in uh, in Proverbs, but Isaiah eleven: A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And there's just so much that we can teach out of that because the 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 branch is the Natser, and uh, it's why he's called a Natser. Uh, it's why he grew up in Nazareth in Nazareth. Uh, he will be called a Nazarene, and that's a nice prophetic fulfillment and a play on words and a beautiful connection to the Nazar prophecy of the branch. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so if you read that verse the right way and kind of connect it the right way, you can get seven out of that. Spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of strength, spirit of knowledge, spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so you can kind of find seven there. Or you can find 
less than seven there. <laughs> but if you absolutely need to have seven, then you can read verse two to find seven if you have to. And on that basis, then, um, this reference to the seven spirits of God that are before his throne will often get explained in Revelation 1 4. Revelation 3 1, Revelation 4, repeatedly through the book of Revelation, it's the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God. If you were with us in our Revelation series, you understand that this is a term for God the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we have the Father, we have the Son, we have God the Holy Spirit. And He is called the seven spirits of God, but it is with reference to the Holy Spirit. All right. Anyway, Revelation 1 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And there's a lot of work you've got to do in this to understand that the, it's Trinitarian. The first reference is the Father who is and who was and who is to come. The second reference is to the Holy Spirit that is the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then the third reference in verse 5 is to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so you've got a full trinity there and uh, a lot of work to do to understand what, why the Holy Spirit is one and seven at the same time. And that comes back again in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 8. Anyway, if the uh, connection between Isaiah 11 2 and revelation if that is tenuous then i think it's doubly tenuous to pro- to connect it to um, proverbs chapter 9 all right wisdom has built her house she has hewn out her seven pillars and there's nothing here that indicates that it's those seven uh, aspects of uh, of isaiah chapter 11 so what else might it be well maybe it comes from james James 3.17 gives us a seven-fold description of wisdom. Okay, maybe. But I, list, I went ahead and I listed these theories in a decreasing order of likelihood or in, shall I say, an increasing dimension of desperation. <laughs> okay, Because we are going so far afield now from anything called context. Uh, basically, we're just looking at the number seven, uh, the word wisdom, and anything that's contained within the Bible. <laughs> All right. And if we can slap some kind of connectivity there, uh, maybe we can uh, we can write a book. Okay. Or we can. Uh, that's not how. That's not a hermeneutic. Okay. That is uh, that is a uh, a. a a, pre, a pretext in search of a context, all right? And, uh, and that's, that's, you don't want to do that for your, for your proof text. But you can probably find seven descriptions in James 3.17. Okay, when we're contra- we were here just on Sunday, and, uh, weren't we? Yeah, the wisdom in, in the Jeremiah class, discussing the difference between the wisdom above and the wisdom below. You know, how likely is it that the Holy Spirit would um, inspire the book of Proverbs a thousand years before Christ and uh, make a reference to the seven pillars of wisdom's house and then not explain it for over a thousand years until the apostle James can come along 
and compose James chapter 3. You know, the idea that we're going to use James chapter 3 as a controlling hermeneutic to go back to um, Proverbs 9 is, is, is a bit of a stretch. It is, it is just as ludicrous, by the way, as viewing the Song of Solomon as an allegory of Christ and the church. You know, so Song of Solomon sat there for a thousand years in the Old Testament just waiting for Christ and the church to, to be created. So that, uh, I mean, what were people, what, what, how were they gleaning any kind of doctrine out of that book? Why was it even in their canon for a thousand years? All right, so there's a clue. It's not an allegory of Christ and the church. All right, James chapter 3. The wisdom from below is, is horrible. It's earthly, natural, demonic. And uh, that's if you have, uh, in James 3, 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. For where selfish, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's our fallen world. That's the cosmos diabolicus. That's the that Satan system. And pathetically, too many believers are embracing that mindset in, in how they run their churches and what they do. But the wisdom from above, ah, here we go, is first, and we have the adverb for first there, or the adjective, and so uh, we can take this as a list, and we can take it as an enumerated description, and enumeration is good if we need to enumerate seven for seven pillars, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, and fruitful, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Oops, I've got eight. Okay, well then let's, let's put merciful and fruitful in a tandem. We'll... we'll We'll put those together with an ampersand, okay? Merciful and fruitful. We'll make that one pillar so that I don't really have eight. I can, I can squeeze seven out of eight, okay? And, uh, and you know, uh, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. Now, actually, linguistically, there could be reason to do that because the full of has a mercy and a good fruits. So, eh, okay. Full of mercy, full of good fruits. Eh, all right. In the syntax, it, it's not totally a stretch to pack those together because mercy and fruit are both kind of the the, the completion of of full of full of mercy and good fruits. So I guess we can call that our full of pillar. And then unwavering, without hypocrisy. Eh, okay. I can, I can turn eight into seven, and there we go. But can, now I go back to Proverbs 9.1 and say, eh, really? All right? No. Maybe it's best to just simply say, you know what? Seven is huge. Seven pillars, when the temple only has two, a seven-pillar Edifice is uh, a complete number. Seven is the number of completion, right? Seven is a complete number, which, by the way, is why the seven spirits of God is the idiom that that is, as an idiom, as an idiomatic use. It is a complete number, which illustrates a spacious palatial residence. All right? 
a complete number which illustrates a spacious palatial residence. And I find that that is interesting, particularly when we connect it to, it's not the first time we've had a residence indicated. It's not the first time we've had this kind of language employed in poetry. Okay, And that's why I think um, we do the best with a literal hermeneutic far better than other folks who want to allegorize everything and, and damage the text by forcing allegory where it doesn't belong. On the flip side, though, sometimes we struggle, because we are literal hermeneutes, sometimes we struggle when a number is provided specifically in poetry, specifically as a number of completion or in a, in a metaphoric context, I think we go too far the other direction and we just demand that, no, there has to be a systematic literal use of that number. Not every number has to be used in that way, particularly if the verse itself is, is metaphor, say. And I think in the connection here in Proverbs, we have that. So if we can overcome our, uh, our uh, desire to want to systematize everything and, and create a categorical doctrine of the seven pillars of God uh, or the seven pillars of wisdom's house, then maybe we can relax and accept this as a complete number illustrating a spacious palatial residence. All right, what do we have in Proverbs 1, verses 20 and 21? you remember this? Uh, Wisdom shouts in the street and lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And she's she's welcoming people to come into her house. All right? We have no problem taking this on a poetic basis, taking this uh, as a metaphor, representing uh, you know life in general or where we are, where we live, and so forth. You know, is this? Uh, I mean, are we going to insist on precision for these other terms as well? I want, well, what street is that? Is that Cross Park Drive? You know, is that Congress Avenue? Is that North Lamar? South Lamar? I mean, what are we talking about here? Is this East Riverside? What are we talking about? At the entrance of the gates in the city? Well, goodness, which gates? Which city? And is this Jerusalem only? Does that mean we in Austin are kind of stuck out? Or do we, do we accept this for the poetry that it is? Do we accept this for the metaphor that it is? And I think we do much better. And, uh, and I think chapter 8 also speaks to this. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand. Beside the gate of the opening to the city at the entrance of the door, she cries out. All right. So I have no problem leaving these seven pillars unlabeled. I have no problem leaving uh, this uh, undiagrammed. I don't feel compelled to become the Clarence Larkin of my generation and draw out a, a monster schematic of a of a you know an edification complex diagram or something um, where I have to put a specific label on each of these seven pillars, all right? Because the text doesn't do that. It doesn't do that at all. I think we're looking at it just a, a palatial residence. And seven pillars would 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 uphold a pretty a pretty uh, whopping building. I mean, there were two pillars in the temple that, that, that Samson pulled down, right? He pulled those two pillars down and the whole thing collapsed and, and everybody in there was killed. 
And that was just two pillars. Can you imagine? Seven? Wow. What kind of a glorious place is this? So, I'm, I'm content to leave it unlabeled and to leave it um, as a picture, as a metaphor, and uh, not insist on forcing. That's eisegesis, not exegesis, by the way. Exegesis is when you're, we're drawing information out of the text. Eisegesis is when we're writing it into the text, and uh, we're not free to do that. We are not God's co-editors where we're not free to just go ahead and add into the text what God didn't put there in, uh, in that respect. All right. Let's look at some other thoughts on pillars, additional thoughts on pillars. The Bible uses pillars in so many different ways. And in, in fact, it, I think it's useful to see there are, there are certain um, metaphors, there are certain um, types when you study typology and you study symbolism in, in apocalyptic uh, literature and so forth. I mean, there are certain things that are so universal that you can just think every time, right? Leaven every time. Oh my goodness. Leaven is sin, right? It is sin in, in every book of the Old Testament. It is sin throughout the scriptures. Genesis to Revelation, leaven is a picture of sin. And, and it is so pervasive and it is so universal, it just becomes undeniable. That when you read love, and the first thing you think of is sin. There's other things, though, that are so uh, varied and variable, that, and, and pillars is one we're going to see here, um, that because it has so many different uses, widely different uses, that you realize that the Bible doesn't use pillars in that way, in the way that it uses leaven. Okay? It, 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 it's not trying to. See? You realize that heaven has pillars, so does the earth. You realize that. So, um, you know, the pillars of the earth, spoken of in Job, in Psalms, in First Samuel, but heaven also has pillars. Verses 20, uh, Job twenty six eleven. So we realize, well, is that is that physical? Is that literal? All right. You know, the Quran teaches that the earth is, is riding on an elephant. Okay? Hmm. I'm hoping that's a, a, a metaphor. <laughs> okay? That's a big elephant. Uh, Job 26.11. And so, uh, and, and we're going to find in most of these uses that uh, we have metaphoric uses as opposed to literal uses. And we're fine with that. We're not traitors to our literal hermeneutic when we identify the metaphors where they are. <laughs> I think we, uh, we betray our literal hermeneutic if we, if we don't accept metaphors on the, the basis that, that they are designed to be taken. All right. Um, the pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. Okay. There's a larger context to this, but uh, verse 5, the Rephaim. If you ever study advanced angelology, you've got to study the Rephaim, who are the departed spirits. Tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. If a Rephaim is disembodied and a uh, intangible spirit realm being, that's one thing. If it's a physical being, it's a giant. These are the giants. Uh, but when they have been slain, then without their bodies, the Rephaim are spirits. 
or demons, we would say. They tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. Abaddon is the angel of that abyss, the uh, angel that's given the keys there in Revelation. He stretches out the north over the empty space, hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. You know, who designed all this? It's genius the way that he did. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. Okay, it's not the harlot from Jericho. <laughs> all right? This is uh, it's spelled differently in the Hebrew. This is Satan. This is the poetic name for Satan, the broad one. All right, the broad one. That's uh, not, uh, it's indicative of, of Satan's pride, of Satan's arrogance, that uh, Satan enlarges himself. He's broad and he broadens his own uh, influence and his own uh, endeavors. It's uh, generally not considered flattering if you call a woman the broad one and uh, for whatever reason. All right. By his breath the heavens are cleared, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. All we get are glimpses. We know far less than we want to know. How faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? Anyway, so heaven has pillars. The earth has pillars. 1 Samuel 2.8, Job 9.6, Psalm 75.3. Heaven has pillars, the earth has pillars. Let's take a look at these. 1 Samuel 2.8. This is a song of Hannah. She is uh, exulting in the Lord. She's delighted that uh, the Lord blessed her with a son, and she's dedicated Samuel to the Lord's service. And so now she is composing this psalm, and um, Holy Spirit places it in the canon of Scripture. Uh, Pick up in verse 6, Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Why is it in that order? Why is it kills and makes alive? Why is it evening and morning, day one? Why, why are things in the order that they're in? He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. The earth has pillars. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are sent, silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Oh, there's so much here that's... Uh, look at verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. This is, uh, this is the resolution of the angelic conflict. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed all right, so the earth has pillars. Are we taking that literally? Or is this a metaphor in the poetry of what Hannah is composing? Okay, the metaphor obviously represents something, but accepted it for the met- metaphoric use in which it is. Job 9 6.
So Job answers, uh, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be right before God? If one wishes to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how. He overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun not to shine, he sets a seal on the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens, tramples down the waves of the sea. And it goes on, notice the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades. I think Job had an amazing uh, astronomy uh, uh, competence, an amazing understanding of of, uh, the universe. We uh, don't give them enough credit, I think. But there's a reference to the pillars of the earth. And then David in his psalm, Psalm 75, speaks of the uh, pillars of the earth. I think Psalm 75 is Davidic. I'm incorrect. I stand corrected. Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. Salah. All right, so heaven has pillars, as does the earth. The Old Testament has pillars of salt, pillars pillars of cloud, pillars of fire. We've got pillars throughout the Old Testament. Of course, Lot's wife has turned into a pillar of salt. Genesis 19.26. It's the same word. It's the same Hebrew word for pillar all throughout all these verses we're looking at. Same word that's used in in Proverbs 9 where wisdom has uh, built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. So the Old Testament has pillars of salt, pillars of cloud, and pillars of fire. Exodus 13, when they're led through the wilderness, when they're led out of Egypt, it's with not with a pillar of salt, it's with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So Genesis 19, 26, I'm running short on time, so um, we'll just let that go. Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22. And do we have any, any sense that the cloud and the fire uh, in, in bringing Israel out of Egypt and guiding them through the wilderness and all that, is there any sense that we want to connect that to Lot's wife? I mean... Was Lot's wife a pillar that was supposed to guide Lot somewhere? Or, or was that pillar designed as a, as a reminder, as a warning, as a, as a testimony to what happens if you disobey? Okay? A lot of times pillars are set up as memorials. Pillars are set up at places of battle or places of victory or places of defeat and, and, and so that people can go back there and be reminded of what happened there. Okay? As in the case of Lot's wife. With the cloud and the fire, though, they weren't fixed. They were movable. (laughs) They moved from place to place. So these seven pillars in wisdom's house, are they the kind that don't move anywhere? Are they the kind that move from place to place? Or or what are they? Or they have no connection whatsoever, like the, the pillars of heaven and the pillars of the earth. Do we just accept the fact that pillar is being used in a metaphoric way to speak in, in Proverbs 9 in the case of its grandeur and its opulence and its, its amazing wonder? Couldn't imagine living in a place so grand as to have seven pillars. Okay? Can't imagine living in a place so grand as in the presence of God. <laughs> Can you imagine? I wouldn't save me. Why did he save me? 
You know, and he wants me to live with him for all eternity. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's amazing. That's how it's, it boggles the mind. All right. Um, next week we'll spend some time on this because, see, pillars were memorial, most of them, or idolatrous, some of them, and or boastful. At least in one case, uh, Absalom set up a, a pillar to himself. Okay, be like, let's let's build a let's build a Bob statue over here. What would that be? Well, you know, if you're Absalom and you think you're the greatest guy that's ever come along, then yeah. Or Nebuchadnezzar put his great big golden statue up and demanded people fall down and worship. So uh, we'll spend some time with this next week. Um, Pillars were memorial, idolatrous, and or boastful. And I apologize. Some, I see some of you squinting. I, I feel bad. Because I, 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 I don't normally go that small on the slide. But I did it so that I could get 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 all on the same slide. All right? And maybe, you know, it's not like I'm paying for paper or anything. I, they're just pixels. Like, you can see it? All right. That's smaller than I like to go. Well, next week we'll come back and we'll pick up on this in, uh, in there because we don't have time to get through those and we're kind of at a good stopping point. So uh, three minutes are on me. Do we have any questions? Yes, ma'am. In most cases, pillars are concepts. They're metaphors. The pillars of the earth. There's no physical pillar. The earth doesn't sit on a pillar. Unless you're a flat earther, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with that and I don't believe I said that I believe uh, because parousia is used for the coming and it's the same parousia that, that is used when he comes for us and it's the same parousia that's used when he comes with us parousia just means coming and a lot of people in fact the, the folks the, the post-tribulational non-rapturists and other people that that confuse things in scripture uh, they deliberately muddy the water because it is the same word, because parousia is used for both rapture and second advent. What is different, though, is the gathering. The gathering only happens at the rapture. The gathering, and even though there's, there's also a gathering at second advent, so I'm not sure what you're, what you're referencing there. So if you can, if you find in your notebook two different words, I'll, I'll look at them and see what those words are. No, that would actually make things easy. <laughs> that would make things easy if, if the coming at the rapture used one word all the time and the coming at second advent used a different word all the time. Well, then that would, that would make it a lot easier. And, and the New Testament doesn't do that. Yeah. All right, Father, we thank you for today, for your faithfulness, for your grace, for all of your patience towards us day by day, moment by moment. Thank you for the pillars in uh, the metaphoric uses 
the literal uses are pretty obvious. Uh, the pillar of salt was, was a real pillar of real salt. Uh, but Father, uh, I just ask that we might not get confused, uh, that we will understand uh, the seven pillars of wisdom and in what it is that's designed for believers to be living in the Word of God. And uh, we're speaking in a metaphor of what it means to be living in the truth. And these brothers and sisters here this morning are living in the truth. They're abiding in the Word of God. That's where they live. They don't just uh, hang out occasionally. They don't just visit every so often. Father, uh, we're here this morning with true disciples that make their abode in your truth. And I thank you for that. So bless, continue to bless these studies, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.